Let's ask now for the Spirit of the living God to help us as we consider His Word together, that He would give us grace to hear and believe and obey what we find in the Word of God today. Father, we are grateful for Your work in us, Your work among us, through the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of His Spirit, and we now ask for that very power, the power of Your Holy Spirit to help us, both to understand Your Word, to receive Your correction and chastisement, to receive Your comfort and strength, to receive conviction of sin, and be convinced of the surpassing righteousness of Christ and the grace which covers our sin. Father, will you help us as we open Psalm 118 uh, to give us understanding, uh, to give us a joy and a delight in not only the good gifts that you've given to us, but you. You are our full portion. Fill our hearts with joy and thanksgiving as we meditate upon you and all that you have accomplished. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As you take your seats, will you turn with me? in your Bibles, to Psalm number 118. It's a common practice on the occasion of a new year, and and gathering together just so happens to be on the Lord's Day, is New Year's Day, and it's a common practice to to look back and reflect upon the year that has gone by, and and to think about and make plans for the year ahead, and that sometimes that takes the form of New Year's resolutions and, and other things, and I think you know, the, the, the reflection and the meditation and planning can be a healthy practice for God's people. And especially if our focus is to meditate upon the goodness and the grace and the power of our God and the blessings that he has given to us over the last year and with a desire to renew our dependence upon him. Dependence on on his power, dependence upon his wisdom, dependence upon his grace for the year ahead. And so with that in mind, I've selected Psalm number 118 as as a meditation, a New Year meditation for us. In fact, I've called the sermon a New Year's panorama, and I I hope to explain what what I mean by that. But it's a New Year's panorama. Psalm 118 stands among the genre of of thanksgiving psalms. As you know, we have a number of genres represented for us in the Bible in general. We, we have narrative, and we have gospels, and we have apocalyptic literature, prophetic literature, and we have wisdom literature, poetry. But even within the poetic sections, even within the wisdom literature of the Psalter, we find different genres. We have triumphant, kingly psalms. We have messianic psalms. And in this particular one, it's in the, the genre, the category of thanksgiving Psalms. And here, as a Thanksgiving psalm, it specifically looks back upon God's deliverance of his people historically. And and it's intentionally reflective, not only individually, but especially corporately. It's reflective upon the goodness of God. And as God's people lift up their voices in praise and thanksgiving to their God, their, their mutual help and encouragement is, is edified and, and built up. Now, when we think about Thanksgiving psalms, they typically follow a, a pattern. And, and it's not exactly followed the same way every time, but there's a general pattern. 
And, and at the first, uh, the first section of a Thanksgiving psalm is usually filled with explicit thanksgiving and praise. We find that here at Psalm 118. Then there is a lament, or there's a striving and struggling over some difficulty, some hardship that is then resolved, followed by renewed praise. Well, that's precisely what we find in Psalm 118. And, and realistically, as we reflect upon this last year, even as you sit here this morning and you think about the last year or the last couple of years, it seems appropriate that we, that we think about God's blessings to us and yet at the same time acknowledge the hardships, the distress that's come. And as you reflect upon the year, you're, you're certainly going to find much for which you are, are thankful But if we're honest, we also find, as we reflect, we find loss, we find sorrow, we find distress. I think back as we were thinking about, even just at the dinner table yesterday, we were thinking about this last year, the privilege of welcoming our first grandchildren. What a blessing from God. Uh, To see a son graduate from high school, begin a new chapter in his life, begin a new vocation, and and what a blessing from God. And at the same time, I walked with my parents as they both lost their last surviving immediate family member, the last of their siblings. And and, and you will likely look back upon this last year and see joyful times. I think in our own church, we've seen seen weddings, we've seen the birth of children, uh, we've seen new jobs, we've seen lots of, of joyful things that God has given to us. And at the same time, we've experienced loss. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you experienced betrayal. You've lost relationships. You've, you've dealt with physical illnesses and hardships this year. Often the Psalms remind me of, of sort of taking a scenic drive. I love to drive in the mountains. I love to be able to round a corner and come up to a peak and just behold the panorama, the grandeur of the view. This last year, we had an opportunity in our General Assembly to go, was in Arizona, and we were able to take Andrew with us, and we went and did a, a short tour of the Grand Canyon. And, and it reminds me, as I think about Psalm 18, it reminds you, you start on, the, on the, the rim of the canyon, you can see for miles and miles and miles, and we, we hiked down, I don't know, 1,500 feet or so, down into, vertically, down into the canyon. And, and you have a whole different vantage point from down at the ground level. Not quite all the way, we didn't go all that far, not to the ground level, but a good, a good bit down and looking back up. And then when you climb back up and you have a whole new appreciation for what you're seeing out around you. And, and the Psalms are often like this. One of the reasons I love to preach the Psalms is it, it almost forces us to take that panoramic view of the Scriptures. As you stand on the mountaintop of Psalm 118 and you kind of look to your left, what you're going to see this morning is, is the, the Old Covenant community responding in praise to God's deliverance. But then as you look and survey right around you in the immediate top of the mountain, what you see is the finished work of Christ foreshadowed and exclaimed in Psalm 118. It's the second most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. And then as you look to your right and you enjoy the view that direction, what you, as you look ahead, what you're going to see are these covenant promises of God being fulfilled on an ongoing basis within the New Covenant community. So that's how we'll divide the text this morning. Looking 
one direction, as it were, into this the immediate context of the psalm and seeing how the old covenant people would have related to this psalm. And then we'll see in it the fulfillment of all that we find here in the very voice of Christ himself and his finished work. And then meditate upon where do we go from here? As we think about the year ahead, as we think about the plans and the ideas and the hopes and the dreams that we have, both you and your own families, your own households, and as a church body, what drives us, what motivates us? And Psalm 118 repeatedly exhorts us to root ourselves in a foundation of praise and thanksgiving to our triune God. Let's read together Psalm 118. And what we have here, what, keep in mind as we read it, here, here's kind of a summary of, of the psalm in just a, a, one sentence. You have here a kingly or priestly figure. He's unidentified in the psalm. And I think that's by the Holy Spirit's wisdom and design. He's unidentified. But we have a kingly, priestly figure who, who has, a, a, who after a victory in a battle by the very hand of God, this figure leads the people in a procession up to the city, up to the holy city to proclaim victory, to declare praise to God, and to lead them, lead the people of God to the temple to offer their, their sacrifices there. So that's really the, the, the have in your mind as you read the words, or as you hear the words read, to think about this. There's a kingly, priestly figure who's moving the people of God. There's a procession. They're moving along together, rehearsing and, and giving praise to what God has done. Hear the word of God, Psalm number 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's, let's take note in the first place how this psalm would have been read and understood and indeed sung by the Old Covenant community. This, this is of, of a cluster of psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel songs. And you hear perhaps in that Hallel, that Hallelujah It's a song of praise, and particularly songs of praise marking the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. There's no historical setting for Psalm 118. There's no author here. You'll you'll notice in your Bible there's no inspired inscription telling us, for example, this is a song of Asaph or a song of David, or this is a song of the sons of Korah. There's no such thing here. It's left anonymous by the Spirit's wisdom. Now, many older commentators attribute it to David, when he brought the ark back from, or back to Jerusalem from the Philistines. There are others who say, no, this is post-exilic, and this is the people of God rehearsing God's deliverance as he brings them back into the land. But we don't know. Most scholars do agree that this was something that was sung by the people of God. These, these would have been hymns of praise as a procession walked up, the, the, up to Jerusalem three times a year for the various feasts, and of course the Passover feast, the Feast of Weeks, or, or Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. This was sung at Passover feasts. In fact, it's very likely that Christ and his apostles sang this very hymn on the night of his betrayal as they celebrated the Passover feast. It's quoted in, the, in, the, in all three of the synoptic gospels. It's quoted by Peter in the book of Acts. It's quoted by Peter in his epistle. It's quoted by Paul in Ephesians. And and the emphasis in the whole text is is movement. There's nothing stationary in Psalm 118. The people of God are moving, moving, moving. And after this victory in battle, given over by the hand of the Lord, this kingly, priestly figure leads the people year by year up the mountain of praise to proclaim victory, to declare praise to God, to lead them to the temple to offer their sacrifices. We see this in verses 1 through 4. There's a call to worship, and just as as our brother Kyle did in our call to worship this morning, he led us responsively, and we have the exact same response. I don't think that was a coincidence, was it, Kyle? Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Over 20 times in this psalm, the the covenant name of, of the Lord is used, Yahweh is given to us, and and the emphasis is on the person of the Lord, recalling, requiring the people to recall to mind the steadfast love of their God, the faithfulness of their God, the goodness of their God. And as this kingly priest, this priestly king approaches the city, he leads the people in praise. That's what we see in verses 1 through 4. But then in verse 5, there's a description of of a victory that, that was necessary because of this deep distress. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me 
and set me free. We, we find this protection language. It's a, it's a description of victory that only can come by the hand of God. It's only by the hand of God. In fact, verse 11 is covenantal language. If you look ahead at verse 11, they surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. It's covenant language. It's a, re- it's a, it's a reference to circumcision. And whereby the, the, the blood covenant of circumcision signified that if someone abandoned the Lord, if someone broke covenant with the Lord, that they would be cut off. And there's a statement that I was that it's better to trust in the Lord Himself than any man, than any prince. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. There's a a victory here that's put before the people, but it's a victory that comes only by the mighty mighty hand of God and by his outstretched arm. In fact, in verse 14, we see an immediate reference to the Exodus. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's a direct quote from Moses' song in Exodus 15. Glad songs of salvation, verse 15, are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. Of course, the scriptures tell us it is by the right hand of God, it was by his mighty outstretched arm that the people of God were delivered from the mightiest nation on the planet at the time, from the clutches of Egypt. And all of Pharaoh's army was cut off in the Red Sea, but God's people were delivered. So they're singing. It, it, it's poetic verse, but they're singing about these, these great victories that God has already established among his people. And, and their praise is united together in one voice as they contemplate God's historical work among them. Verses 15 to 21 focus upon an internal turmoil, an internal tribulation. As you read the language, again, one of the things that the Psalms do, poetic verse does, is it causes us not just to to have something resonate in our minds, but to feel it, to feel the weight of the distress of the Psalms. And and then through that, it gives us voice often to our own distresses. In the New Testament, when Paul says that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness when we don't know how to pray, I believe one of the ways he does that is through the Psalter, by giving us voice. There are times when, I don't, Lord, I don't even know what to ask. I don't even know, how, I can't even describe my own feelings in the depth of my despair, in the depth of my sorrow, in the depth of, of my anxiety. I don't even know what to, how to express that. And the Psalms give us words to describe our own experience. Verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. If you've been a Christian for very long, I think you probably can relate to these words, can't you? The Lord has disciplined me severely. You've seen hardship. You've seen struggle. You've seen sorrow. And yet you didn't die. The Lord has preserved you. The Lord has kept you by his grace. And yet, it doesn't take away the fact that it was painful. Notice in verse 22, something something remarkable happens. 
Verse 22, of course, is a verse that's quoted and alluded to multiple times in the New Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Christ himself is the first to quote this and applies it to himself. And then the apostles Peter and Paul make much of this quotation as well. But in verse 23, the pronouns shift. Everything up to this point has been I, I, I. It's the voice of this song leader, of the worship leader. But now it shifts, and the people of God are responding together. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that plural, the plural pronouns continue throughout the rest of the psalm. The people take up this as their own. It is not just a solitary leader, but all the people join together in praise. And this kingly priest now speaks again, representing all of the people. And so that's the psalm as it relates to the Old Covenant community. We, we could spend an entire sermon teasing out some of the metaphors that are here, but I encourage you to, to meditate on this on your own and think about how, how it would have been heard and how it would have been sung and how it would have resonated with the Old Covenant community as they marked and meditated and celebrated God's deliverance, God's covenant faithfulness, despite, despite their unfaithfulness. But now as we stand together, as it were, at this mountaintop lookout, as we've kind of descended into the canyon a little bit, and we've come back up, and we're looking now across the rim. We're looking out over this majestic, covenantal, redemptive vista. Let's look straight ahead. Let's examine the ground around us and see how this psalm, has been completely fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As I mentioned, the psalm is frequently quoted about Jesus. It's quoted by Jesus. But we can say the entire psalm traces the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly what is known as the Holy Week. When Luke tells us that Christ set his face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem. Even his disciples didn't understand that. Remember, even Peter said, not on my watch, Lord, this is not going to happen. You're not going to die. You're not going to be handed over to sinful men. And remember Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. There was a purpose in all of this. And so, as I told you, the psalm is, is, is fundamentally grounded in a thanksgiving, but it's a moving thanksgiving. There's movement throughout the psalm. And it, and it almost perfectly parallels our Lord's Holy Week, as he moves up to Jerusalem, leading up to his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I'm persuaded that the reason that the Holy Spirit has not given to us any particular historical person, such as David, in the psalm, is because it's, it's meant for us to be universalized, to apply to any point in history, any time in history, but also so that we can look to its complete fulfillment, its true fulfillment in Christ himself as the greater David, the true Israel. In Luke 9, again, the Bible tells us that Jesus sets his face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem, and, and he goes up at the Passover. I mean, he's, he's, by this point, he's a wanted man. The warrants have already been issued for his arrest. And yet he goes up, he goes publicly. And if you, if you would turn over to Matthew 21, and just put, a, put, a, put this in your notes, 
to go and look at Matthew 21, how, how the parallels we see in Psalm 118 and Matthew 21 accounting for this triumphal entry. And there's no doubt that this psalm would have been on the minds of the people of Jerusalem that week. And we, and we can see that. Look at verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, you will find that exact phrase in Matthew 21. That's what the people shouted. They had their palm branches, and they waved them, and they set them before their triumphant king, their king riding in on a borrowed colt, according to the scriptures. And the people cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This Hosanna means, oh, save. And they applied that to Jesus. And, and this, this saving cry can only apply to one who is God. They called him the son of David. This was a messianic title. The people believed that this is, as Jesus was entering in, they found, even, even in their unregenerate ears, they were hearing echoes of Psalm 118. But rather than going up to the temple with joy as the kingly, priestly figure in Psalm 118, Jesus goes up to the temple with sorrow. Jesus enters the temple and he drives out the thieves and the money changers. Instead of a house of prayer, he finds a temple that was a place of greed and illegitimate and unjust power. The blind and the lame are healed here. Much to the chagrin and the displeasure of the rulers of Israel. And Jesus responds to this whole disapproval of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, re he responds to them with a series of parables. And he explains through parables how the Jews have now been cut off. So see, he takes Psalm 118, he's following the exact path of Psalm 118 until there's a twist. And now we have this conquering king who's not coming in to save the religious establishment. The ones who were working illegitimately with the authority and the influence they'd been given, they're the ones who actually are cut off. And it's the blind, the lame, the poor, the prostitute, the beggar that's, in, that's asked to enter in. The chief priests and the Pharisees began to perceive, you can read this in, in Matthew 21, they began to perceive that he was talking about them. <laughs> you think? And, and you can imagine the, the scene around him of those who had been denied access to God, been denied access to the temple because they were crippled, or because they were lepers, because they were sinners and, and judged unclean. And yet now Christ says, these can come. And all those who are self-righteous are cut off. And Jesus quotes at this point, he gave, he gave a parable, the parable of the talents. I'm sorry, the parable of the tenants. And, and compared the Jews to unrighteous, unjust, thieving tenants who actually killed the son, the heir, so that they could take for themselves the fruit of the vineyard. And Jesus at that point quotes from Psalm 118. In verse 22, 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And now, rather than a bound sacrifice, we see in verse 27, verse, the second half of verse 27, bind the festal sacrifice. Well, a festal sacrifice, I mean, it's, it's a sacrifice of praise, often offered after a victory, after a military victory. And, and that offering would be lifted up, put up on the altar, and offered up to the Lord. But rather than that, Jesus offers himself. Our Lord Jesus sat down with his disciples on the very night of his betrayal. So this is my body, which is for you. It's going to be laid down as an offering. This is no longer blood. This wine no longer represents the blood of an animal that was shed symbolically for the covering and the passing over of God. This is now my blood. This is a new covenant sealed and ratified in my own blood. And now, because of what this priestly king has accomplished, we can put a finer exclamation point on verse 6. Look back at verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The apostle to the Hebrews in the 13th chapter quotes this. But notice something he adds. He says, so we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Now why do you suppose he says this? We can say confidently. Does he mean by that that the people in the old covenant could not express confidently that God would deliver them? Well, no, that's not at all what he's saying. Of course the people of God could, could depend upon his power, his grace, his character. But the writer of the Hebrews says, because of what Christ has accomplished, accomplished, we can say with a greater confidence. One of the running themes throughout the the book of Hebrews from the very first chapter is Christ is greater than. He's more than. He's better than. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He, He comes with a covenant that's built on better promises. He's a better king. He's a better priest. He's a better prophet. And here, Because of his work, we have a better confidence. If the people under the old covenant, climbing up the mountain year by year by year, going to the Passover feast, could sing this and believe it, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear, what can man do to me? The writer of Hebrews quotes this and says, how much more can we, as the new covenant people of God, cleansed of our sin, guaranteed an inheritance? How much more can we take confidence in that fact? Now this brings us to the very final, the final point. And we ask this question, how does this psalm relate to and apply to the new covenant community of faith? How do we, as, as God's covenant people under the covenant of grace, how, how do we think about this? I mean, we're not marching up to Jerusalem, we're not taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But how do we think about this? As we look out now from this mountain vantage point, if we look ahead, we want to think about this psalm as it relates to the new covenant community of faith. How does this apply to the church of Jesus Christ after his sacrificial death and resurrection? And then in particular, as we think about the closing of of a chapter, the end of 2022, 
and, and meditate upon the beginning of a new year filled with possibilities, feels filled with its own anxieties as we look ahead? How do we think about these things? So let's meditate in the last place upon Psalm 118 in the New Covenant community. Jesus, as I said, has applied the psalm to himself. And all of it, not only verse 22, where he says he is the cornerstone, he is the stone the builders rejected, and now has become the cornerstone. He's applying all of Psalm 20, of 118 to himself. Jesus is not merely visiting the temple as a pilgrim. See, year by year by year, the priests would have led the people of God up the mountain at the occasion of the Passover feast, or the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Weeks, and they would have led the people of God in these praises, and it would have terminated, that procession would have terminated at the temple where they offered their sacrifice. Jesus, instead, is not merely visiting the temple. He's not merely a pilgrim. He's declaring that he's building a new one, not made with human hands. As we saw in our our reading this morning from Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter, that was the subject of the false accusations made against Christ, wasn't it? That Jesus says, I will tear down this temple and build it up again in three days without human hands. And we know from the scriptures, Jesus was speaking about his own body. He is that temple. He's built a new temple, not one made with human hands. Jesus Christ is not simply remembering the exodus. He's led an entirely new and better exodus. In in a new and, and exceedingly powerful way, the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered an enemy far greater than the nation of Egypt. He has released his people from cords and bonds and chains far stronger than Egyptian whips. He's led us out of sin itself. He's conquered an enemy far more powerful, far more threatening than Pharaoh. He's conquered sin and death and the grave. Jesus is a new exodus. He's a greater exodus. And when Jesus says, I am the cornerstone, he's speaking in this temple language. This particular passage is, again, the second most quoted in all the New Testament with respect to the Psalter. In Acts chapter 4, Peter appears before the council. I mean, the high priest, all of the dignitaries, the rulers of Israel were there. And Peter says, you've rejected the stone. And now that stone that you've rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then in in Ephesians 2, Paul takes that same image again. He says, we are being built, we as Christ's body are being built together as a temple upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Peter takes the same analogy and says, calls us actually living stones, being built, being grafted in, to this new temple. And they both, both Peter and Paul, mix the metaphors. It's a head and a body, but also a temple with human beings as stones being fashioned together by the hand of God. Verse 25, the people, the pilgrims on their journey to Jerusalem would cry out, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of this prayer. As the people pray, they didn't know fully what they prayed for, did they? Just as we often don't know fully what we're praying for. Lord, save us. Save us, we pray. And the Lord has answered that prayer. Verse 19, Jesus takes this upon his own lips. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Jesus himself is the way, the truth, the life. He is the gate by which we must enter. There is no righteousness. There is no truth. There is no salvation found anywhere else other than through this particular solitary gate. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. As the people contemplated the exodus from Egypt, the Red Sea was opened for the children of Israel, but it was closed for Pharaoh and his army. The temple was opened to sinners and tax collectors in Christ, the lame and the blind, but it was closed to the proud, to the self-righteous. Beloved, do we comprehend how profoundly good this good news is? That through Christ's own body and blood, a gate, a door, a way has been opened for us into righteousness. A way that could not have been discovered, could not have been opened by any of our own work. Your king, your priest, your prophet has opened the gates to heaven for you by laying himself down. For you. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, God is, is pleased with you. He has promised eternal blessings for you. As, as we th- contemplate this last year, and I've talked to a number of you, I've just in the last couple of days talked to a couple of men who just who said, you know, this has been a rough year. This has been a very difficult year. And as we think about those difficulties, whether it's financial or relational or or marital, our our children, both young children or adult children, and, and anxiousness for our extended families, our workplaces, the darkness in our our civil sphere, the disintegration of our culture all around us, and, and we can grieve and wring our hands and become very anxious. So it's, it's right for us. It's right for us to say, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. It, it, it's okay to acknowledge that there have been difficulties, been intense trials, severe distress. But after this victory in battle, that's given by the hand of God alone. Here is our great king leading us as his people, leading us in victory, leading us up to his holy temple to proclaim victory, to declare praise to God, and to lead us into his temple to offer sacrifice of praise. Your king and priest has opened the gates of heaven for you by laying down his own life, by willingly giving himself up into the hands of sinful men according to the purposes of God, submitting himself even to the point of obedience 
of death on a cross. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, God is now pleased with you. The very thing that sometimes you feel you're least likely to feel, that God is pleased with you. I mean, what what even earthly child doesn't want to hear that his father, that his mother is pleased with him? How much more is God's children do we want to hear that our Heavenly Father is pleased with us? Not according to our own merit, but according to the finished work of Christ. And as you contemplate this this morning, are are you burdened with the difficulties of this past year as, as you climb up the mountain, so to speak, to Jerusalem? And sometimes it feels like you get up on a Sunday morning and it feels like you're climbing a mountain just to give praise, doesn't it? And it's a mountain that feels like sometimes it's, it's the, the, you're dealing with the rock slides and the mud slides and, and all kinds of, of uh, deterrence and hindrances to keep you from climbing to a place of praise. But God is pleased with you and His Son. The steadfast love of God endures forever. And as you follow him into the very courtyards of, of praise, and, and you find yourself weighed heavy with the load of your own sin. Sometimes on a Sunday morning when, when we're gathering for worship and, and we're thinking about all the distractions of the world and all the heaviness that we deal with, and then we have to acknowledge this, a lot of that is me. It's my own sin. It's my own folly. It's my own troubles. Steadfast love yet endures forever. We we need to learn to rest, not only in the goodness of God, but in the righteousness of Christ. We believe that the gates of righteousness have indeed been opened to us, but not by our own work. A 17th century Dutch reformer, Wilhelmus Brockel, said this. He said, how much yearning there still is for the covenant of works. Don't you find that to be true? Even in your own soul, there's there's a yearning that you can make yourself righteous. He says there's a yearning for the covenant of works. This becomes evident in the manifestation of unbelief when falling into sin, as if sin would nullify all the promises, and as if one must find something within himself before coming to Christ. Are you limping up the mountain this morning, hindered by the sins of others against you? Hindered by those things that are outside of your control, things that have been done to you? Oh, dear saint, the steadfast love of God endures forever. As we meditate upon Psalm 118 as, as as a guide for us, as a lens through which we can look back upon 2022, or the last few years, and look ahead to what, what God has in store for us. We'll give you some, some final thoughts of, of, by way of application. So we think about how do, how, do we, how do we think, how do we respond to Psalm 118? First, and, and, and the most obvious one, is praise. Is to lift up thanksgiving to our God. To remember, f- first, who He is that his steadfast love endures forever. He is a God worthy of our praise. He is a God worthy of our thanksgiving. 
and, and to prioritize then the worship of God, and, and especially the public worship of God. This is, as I said earlier, the, the pronoun shift. This becomes not just an individual endeavor, but God's people coming together, lifting up one unified voice in praise of their God. We were created for the very purpose of praising God, enjoying fellowship and communion with Him. And we have been recreated as new creatures in Christ by His own blood for this very purpose. We've been renewed so that we can, again, have a fellowship with our God that we lost in Adam. How much more can we, even more than the saints of old, even more than our brothers and sisters under the old covenant, how much more can we praise the steadfast love and faithfulness of God by delivering us from our sin by the power of the blood of his own son? We need to repent of our dullness We need to remember the covenantal love of our God. As the psalm began, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. How easily can we forget that simple declaration? God is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. I think related to this, Psalm 118 helps us to grasp, grasp something very important in the real world in which we live. (laughs) Offering sincere praise and thanksgiving to the Lord is not incompatible with being honest about our distress. You ever had those kinds of thoughts where you think, my my praise must be insincere because I'm overcome with distress. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm fearful. I'm sorrowful. I'm feeling the sting of betrayal. How can my praise be genuine? Well, Psalm 118 helps us to see that both can be true at the same time. That even in the midst of acknowledging a severe distress, trial, sorrow, hardship of all kinds, we can say, but God is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Regardless of my present circumstances, regardless of the anxieties about tomorrow, regardless of the hardships of yesterday, I can say, God is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Sometimes we think genuine praise requires us not to be honest about distress, about hardship, about struggle. Or other times we think we we just can't come at all and and genuinely give thanks to God because we're overwhelmed with the difficulties of life. So we say, you know what, it's better just to stay home because my praise would just be disingenuous. I'm overcome with my present circumstances. Therefore, I should act like one of the, you know, the, the, the dog that gets injured and he crawls up under the porch. Maybe he comes out, maybe he doesn't. And that's our natural response, isn't it? When difficulty comes, the natural man retreats. He isolates. And what Psalm 118 encourages us to do, it's in the very midst of that distress, so we actually unite our voices together. We lift up our hearts in praise together. And that brings us to a second point of application that's immediately related to the first, and that's to honor the Sabbath day. To honor the appointed time of worship. God has created a particular day on which we have a particular duty to honor. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day. 
Psalm 118 testifies to the fact that there is a given and appointed time when we worship our God. It's not all days generally, but one day particularly. This day is a special and distinct day of praise. And we marvel at God's goodness to us. And on this particular day, our great high priest and prophet and king has promised to meet with us. Has promised to dwell among us in a covenant of grace. He, he promises to meet with us as he leads us into to the procession of his own temple. A temple not made with human hands. Not leading us to a physical place, but leading us to himself. Matthew Henry, commenting on Psalm 118, makes immediate application. He draws a direct line from Psalm 118 to the doctrine of of our Sabbath worship. He says this, he says, It may very fitly be understood of the Christian Sabbath, which we sanctify or set apart in remembrance of Christ's resurrection, when the rejected stone began to be exalted. And so, number one, here is the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. It is the day which the Lord has made, has made remarkable, made holy, has distinguished from other days. He has made it for man. It is therefore called the Lord's day, for it bears his image and superscription. But secondly, the duty of the Sabbath, the work of the day that is to be done in this day, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Not only in the institution of the day, that there is such a day appointed, but in the occasion of it, Christ's becoming the head of the corner. That's the ground of our praise. He goes on to say, this we ought to rejoice in both at his honor and our advantage. Sabbath days must be rejoicing days. Sabbath days must be rejoicing days. And then, They are to us as the days of heaven. See what a good master we serve, who, having instituted a day for his service, appoints it to be spent in holy joy. Our master has not said, you come on this day and make bricks with no straw. He says, you come. You sit at my feet. You dwell in my glory. And you lift up your voices in praise to me. That's the work that you do today. I'll close with a couple of passages in Hebrews where the, the writer of the, of, of the letter to the Hebrews works these things out. In Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11, again, building upon this theme of Christ is more than, he's greater than, he's better than. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's saying under the old covenant, they had to offer up burnt offerings and sacrifices. And there was a a measure in which bodily, outwardly, their sin was cleansed. It was atoned for. But they had to do this over and over and over again because it didn't take away the root issue. The blood of bulls and goats could sanctify in some limited measure. But how much more the blood of Christ? Now, 
we're conditioned to think in finite terms. When we hear a term like, how much more? We tend to think in terms of something like a budget. How much more money are we going to need to cover this deficit? We, we, we name a number. Or we think about how much more time is it going to require to finish this project? And we'll, we'll put a number, it's hours or it's days. Or we might think in terms of, of food. We have 100 people coming for this event. How much more food do we need to feed everyone? You see, we're, we, we think in those finite terms. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews do, is doing here. He says, how much more? It's infinite. It's incomprehensibly more. Eternally more. The blood of bulls and goats had a temporary cleansing effect, but only outwardly. How much more? How much more efficacious? How much more effective? How much more uh, uh, holistically has Christ saved us, washed us, cleansed us? Then in Hebrews 10, he picks up the sun of the same thread. He's still pulling on this same thread. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. See, this ties directly back to Psalm 118, verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. What is the gate? Christ himself is the gate. He is the righteousness. The 10th chapter of Hebrews continues, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of, the, of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, see that same language again, all the more as we see the day approaching. Saints, there is a natural impulse in us that when we see the day approaching, we see distress, we see sorrow, we see difficulties, we retreat, we isolate, we withdraw. And the admonition from the scriptures, the Holy Spirit himself says to you, that's not a good impulse. That's, that's, that's the way of the worldling. And for God's covenant people, we draw near. I mean, think about it, all through the Old Testament, when, when, when Moses comes near to the burning bush, what does God say to him? Don't come near. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground. When God assembled his people at Sinai, he told them, don't come near the mountain. Don't even let your cattle come near the mountain. They will die. Do not come near. Then when, God, when, when the people of God heard the voice of God thundering, the people said to Moses, you go and speak to God. We can't bear it. We will die. And the Lord said something that's remarkable. He says, the people speak rightly about this. How many times does God say his people spoke rightly about anything? He said, the God, people speak rightly about this. Over and over and over again in the Old Covenant, the admonition is, do not come near because you'll die. God is too holy as a consuming fire. You cannot bear the heat of his glory. But in the new covenant, by the blood of Christ, he says, come near, come into his presence. 
become clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In fact, not only come, don't come timidly, don't come bashfully, come boldly before the throne of grace, trusting that the righteousness of Christ has purged and covered and pardoned your sin. Come to him. Lift up your voices in praise. Place your trust continually in our Savior. Call out to our God for salvation. Hosanna. Save us. Don't we need to pray this at all times? Both individually and, and corporately. We need to call upon the Lord for our deliverance. And I would encourage you, saints, as, as we think about this, and I'm, I'm going to press this analogy a little further, this, this view from this holy mountain, as we look backwards, as we look at, at the, the atoning, fulfilling work of Christ, as we look ahead, don't rush your time there. It's like driving all the way up to Pike's Peak, and up there and get out of the car, oh yeah, this is nice, and get back in the car and drive back down. What a waste. Spend the time on the mountain today. Spend the time thinking about the goodness of your God. Spend the time contemplating his steadfast love, which endures forever. Meditate on what you, I'll use air quotes, what you see in every direction. As you think about the hardships of the last year, deal with them honestly. But deal with them in light of the new covenant. As you look ahead, whether with joyful expectation or fearful anticipation of the year ahead, will you think about it through the lens of God's steadfast love, which endures forever? Will you think about it through the lens of the reality that we can say with confidence? The Lord is my helper. No man can harm me. We lift up our voices together as God's people regularly, expectantly, knowing that our God has not changed. The same God who bids us to look to him in praise and thanksgiving is the same God who ministers to us today. So let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you in the name of your Son for your faithfulness, your steadfast love. There can be no greater, purer, enduring testimony of your steadfastness than the sending of your own Son to take upon himself our human flesh to submit himself to the eternal purposes of the triune God, to save a people, to redeem a people for your own possession. Father, by your Spirit's work in us, by the testimony of your word, by your instruction to our minds, our hearts, will you teach us to live as a holy people? Teach us what it means to be set apart in a wicked and dying world. Help us to live lives as priests and kings before you, declaring to a dying world that there is a gate of righteousness through which men must enter in order to be saved. Grant to us boldness to come into your presence and boldness to go out of your presence and declare to men 
that there is only one who is the way, the truth, and the life, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.